Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching The Thing. A research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. Okay. 1982. Yep. John Carpenter. Yep. What do you think? I had no, like, I had no idea what this movie was. Like, I knew, okay, horror film, Kurt Russell, whatever. So I had no reference for this film. Uh-huh. Eh. Oh, no. This movie is gross. This is the grossest movie we've watched. It's very gross. It is shockingly gory and disgusting in a way that you are not prepared for in any form or fashion. Like, this movie is grosser than Saw. <laughs> yeah. And is grosser than Friday the 13th with the the axe to the face. Well, and it's it's gross because it's not just the effects that you see. Mm-hmm. It's also the suggestion of what is going on. Yeah, it's it's bad. I did not like it. It's gross in a way that's off-putting to you. Yeah, I, I did not enjoy. Like, it felt like it was gross for the sake of being gross. I mean, I will say that for the movie, that its effects, while groundbreaking Mm -hmm. and really effective for the time, take away from what the really cool part of the story is, Mm -hmm. which is all of the character work. The coolest part of this movie is the paranoia. I will say the paranoia is a very cool element of the film. It, It is. It truly is. And the fact that how it got in... They showed you at the very beginning and you didn't realize it. Yeah. That, that is very cool. I liked that. But I definitely told, kept saying over and over again to David, this is a doggy snuff film. This is just a doggy snuff film. <laughs> and I am offended and angered by this. I was not prepared for th- how the dogs were going to get used throughout the movie. Now, I will say. Doggy snuff film. It's all puppets. I know. And it's all... No different animals effects. were harmed in the making of this film. Absolutely. But Which, still. like, for 1982, that's still a little bit of an open question at times. It's still not great. <laughs> I did not enjoy it. Did you not enjoy the film overall? Or was it just because of that that you couldn't enjoy the parts of it you did enjoy? I mean, it's... Okay, I didn't like how excessively... Ex- Exploitively gross it was. It, it just, it was like, there's no purpose to this, in my opinion. I didn't hate it. I will not watch it again. Would you watch a remake? Because there is one. Mm, I'm going to have to know more about its premise. It is a remake and prequel. Okay. It tells the story of the other Norwegian camp. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I kind of love this movie. Of course you do. I will agree with you. The gore is ridiculous at times. It's unnecessary. It's over the top at some moment. There are some moments where it's really effective, but you cheapen the really effective moments like, you know, the blood test, Mm -hmm. which is fucking great. Yeah. Versus like the dog flower split scene. The dog demogorgon scene. (sighs) It's one of those things where you do need to see something extreme, sure. but you it doesn't need to linger like it does. Well, that was the wrong moment for that to happen, because the great thing about the way that scene started was that, like, clearly the dog is on to something. The do- yeah, all the dogs in the pen realize something's fucked up like, about this one other like dog. This one do- something's off about this dog. But like that dog walks in and it's like the dog is sensing like this presence. Like maybe it's a ghost. Like, okay, so maybe like, okay, this dog realized is on to something that's wrong. But then it's no, the other dogs feel like, no, there's something off about this dog. And so it would have been more suspenseful if the dog dude left and came back and they're all dead or they're all dead except for one. And so it's just the original dog plus another one that has now been like replicated or whatever. And if you want to get that, you 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 see a silhouette and then you see the flamethrower or something like that, Some, where, where you don't see everything. Yeah, they gave it away all up front at that point because at the beginning, because here's the thing, when we first see the dog, I'm like, wait, is the dog the killer? Is the dog evil? Wait, 
Or are they just going to make us think it's the dog, but really it's some other essence that, or it's a person that we aren't actually seeing. And so it's like, wait, that would have been so much more suspenseful. It's an actual person that we never actually see a la Halloween. And then they just gave it away. And then it's just like, okay, so now it's a virus, which yay, 2020. <laughs> but it was just, they gave away so much. Well, any. It's not really a virus. No, I get it. But it, some of it is, we, we've talked about this when we've watched John Carpenter movies, where he gives no context. And sometimes that works pretty well. Which is fine. This movie has no context. I didn't need context. But you gave away stuff. You just gave everything away. And it was just like, no, dude. And in looking at how this production came together, I think some of that is... Carpenter was working with a much larger and more involved group mm -hmm. than he's used to, which means he's not able to just do his thing like he normally would. Okay. But that doesn't excuse those issues that pop up because you're right. We give away the farm way too quickly with this movie. And then the movie goes on for fucking ever. This movie is too long. The infighting between, oh, it's this guy. No, it's this guy. No, we have it. No, we don't. How do we prove we don't have it? Is so fucking obnoxious. I don't give a fuck. Oh, man. That's what I love about the movie. No. That's everything I love about the movie. Here's the thing. You gave away what the problem is in the first 30 minutes of the movie. That's half the solution. Sorry. I don't care. Fair. You're going to have to murder almost everybody in this movie to solve the problem. Yeah. I already know that now because it's an unseen sickness, basically. I already know that going in. At least half these people are already dead. Before I even see them die, I don't care anymore. Suspense gone. There was nothing suspenseful anymore. Mm, I, I don't agree. Because I, I still think the thing you keep having to ask yourself is, yeah, but it's still here. Who is it? I don't care, though. Oh. I legitimately don't care. I do. I, I cared so much. <laughs> you care about stupid shit. Like, <laughs> like I cared more about the dog. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but they made like they they gave it away and I no longer cared. Wow. Okay. Like, I was actually interested when they was like, oh, no, now its only thing is if it if its goal is to get out, and now its goal is to just go to sleep, to go back to sleep, to freeze. That was the only part of the conversation for the last 45 minutes of the film that I found remotely interesting. Wow. It was like, oh, now I understand what the aim now is for survival because it can't leave. It has no hope for survival unless it goes to sleep. It's allowed to fr freeze again. That's its only chance. It's like, that's interesting. Why am I still watching this movie? I love it. <laughs> <sighs> Ooh, we're going to have very different opinions it's, about this movie. It's really sad. What? <laughs> it's just sad. Dude. We're allowed to. I'm allowed to like movies that you don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not. The budget for this film was $15 million. That makes sense with all the special effects. Sure. That is a substantial jump from horror movies of the time. Halloween had only cost $375,000. Yeah. No, that was like his first time around the block. They weren't going to give him a lot of money for nope. that. It opened to $3.1 million. Its total gross was $19,630,000. So this movie failed and failed spectacularly. And that is going to be a lot of what we talk about with this movie. Because it sucks. It doesn't, though. It sucks. And it's so fucking long. <sighs> you could cut 30 minutes easily. You're so wrong. I'm, but not, okay. I'm not wrong at all. Well, here's some critics who kind of maybe agree with you. Mm -hmm. Vincent Camby of the New York Times said it's, quote, too phony looking to be disgusting. It qualifies only as instant junk, unquote. I completely disagree with that. I don't think it's instant junk. Because it, here's the I thing. Don't, I don't agree with that. It is gory as hell, but it does look amazing. It looks really well made. Whether or not you like the content. It's, okay, it is competently made. I'm, I'm not, yeah. I'm not refuting that at all. Damon was, Anson of Newsweek, quote, an example of the new aesthetic, atrocity for atrocity's sake, unquote. Okay, that's just being mean. 
It, it got bad. Hey, let's be clear. My criticism, not just being mean. No, I or know. Or cruel. Alan Spencer of Starlog, quote, John Carpenter was never meant to direct science fiction horror movies. He's better suited to direct traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings, unquote. One reviewer's comment called Carpenter a, quote, pornographer of violence, unquote. I mean, that's pretty good. He's not, though. (laughs) In general. That's that's a a pretty good line, though. But per John Carpenter, quote, that really had me thinking about my career. Not Ghosts of Mars. Being called a pornographer, unquote. And as we'll get into when we talk about it, this movie really messed with him as a director Hmm. and how it was received. Yeah. Carpenter got the worst of all criticism when Christian Nyby, the director of the original film, The Thing from Another World, which is a Howard Hawks production from 1951. Mm -hmm. He denounced the version saying, quote, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch, unquote. (laughs) Funny enough, Gene Siskel liked the movie. Ugh, wow. He thought the paranoia and fear were really compelling, which I agree with him. (laughs) While Ebert, who usually was actually more into these new kind of horror movies, called it a, quote, barf bag movie, thinking it was much inferior to Alien, which... I would agree with that. I will agree, not on, like, a huge scale, but I will say that Alien is the much more thoughtful, compelling version of this movie. It's way better storytelling and it doesn't give away the farm. However, this movie is now widely considered a classic film and one of the best horror films ever made, if not one of the best films ever made. Oh, that is uh, bullshit. No, uh-uh. <sighs> there is something about the way the characters interact and the mm-hmm. acting and the tension. Look, I was ratcheted the whole fucking movie. Are, we, are you high? No. Ugh, you were, no. Lamb. I liked this movie. No, no. We don't have to agree. You're like all those people who think La La Land is good. Ugh. How dare you? Uh, no, well, I'm, I'm about to end this podcast. No, you're not. <laughs> we haven't had an argument I like this. I hated La La Land. I know, but this is how much I'm mad at you for having this opinion. And La La Land is trash, and we haven't had an argument like this in a long time. Come on, let's give people what they want. I'm, I'm going to temper it, because I, I don't just want to take the film studies major view of this movie. Because it's like, oh, it's, just, it's like, no, I just really felt the tension and just, the fear in it. I, I just did. I don't see how that's possible. I, 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 you you didn't get that out of it, and I did. I got nothing. <laughs> I got trash. All right, well, the writing for this film, which could be part of the problem. We have Bill Lancaster, who writes the screenplay. He is son of Hollywood royalty, Burt Lancaster. Okay. His only writing credit is The Bad News Bears and its sequel. Okay. That's it. That is all he wrote. It is based on the short story Who Goes There, written by John W. Campbell Jr. He is a very original sci-fi writer back in the very early days of sci-fi. Okay. And so The Thing from Another World was based on that short story. Okay. And then John Carpenter is remaking a new version of that story with this. Okay. So what do we think of the script of this movie? Well, I mean, that's where my biggest issue with the whole thing comes from and that they gave away too much at the beginning. And if that is from the script, that's where your movie got ruined. I think it is. If that came directly from the script and wasn't a choice from editing or from just the director then that is where 75% of my problem with this movie comes from. And I like there's just no excuse for that. Sorry. You know, thinking about it, what I am compelled by in this movie is far more of the acting, the reactions, mm-hmm. and the the interpersonal just like back and forth between the characters. Sure. The actual words they say aren't that great. No, they're not. Like they're very broadly written characters. It's just so happens that you have really great character actors, and a guy named Kurt Russell. Yeah, you do have a good cast. We have a lot of that guys in there. I know that just from being like, hey, it's that guy, it's that guy. It's and that they're guy. all acting their ass off. I wouldn't say that, but like they showed up to work. So like the script is not strong at all. Yeah, I, I thinking about it and looking at this different mm-hmm. stuff, I was like, there's a lot of... <laughs> I can still like the movie and recognize it's a shitty script. It's fine. 
the writing is is not on solid ground no. in a lot of ways. Noop, noop, noop. The common discussion that happened on set was whether someone would know whether they were the thing or not. Okay. That was one of the biggest issues they kept come running up against. Yeah, and see, the writers should have figured that out. There were so many- or- or the writer could have left that vague and the director should have decided that so that he could have directed the actor to be like, in this scene, you are paranoid that you have it. In this scene, you have it and you are making want to make sure that nobody thinks you have it. But I can understand having an ensemble and wanting to say, okay, look, what do you guys think? Let's Let's hash this out and figure it out. Also, because everybody has to be on the same page. Well, right now, this is the this movie is the game amongst us. <laughs> <laughs> it is well, but again, that points to the influence of this movie too. Like I will say, this movie has a lot of different things have taken and borrowed from this movie and and what it does. That's giving this movie way too much credit. This is an improv game at that. It's also Clue. Come on. <laughs> but that again, that goes back to that's a combination of poor writing, poor directing. Someone has to make a decision. You have it or you don't in this scene. And that can constantly be changing. And this person knows they do or they or they don't. One of the biggest problems is they were constantly getting bogged down in discussions of how the thing worked mechanically. I guarantee you it was not written well in the script at all. Okay. Well, judging by how we're talking guess here. Guess what, John yeah. Carpenter? That was your just your cho- that was your job. Yeah. Was to make a decision. Yeah. And anybody else can have their character bullshit of like, this is how I feel. This is how I feel. Whatever. That's fine. But whatever the director says, that's how it's going to work. Like, and that, like, that's the person who's supposed to be in charge. Like, what they say is supposed to go and that stuff. Everyone agreed that if the thing is a perfect imitation mm-hmm. of another person, then whoever had been taken over would still believe they were human, not an alien. But see, at the end, that's not how it performs at all. Well, the ending is very ambiguous and left very open to interpretation, as we will get into. This movie is crap. (laughs) I love it. Cold War paranoia also pervades the film with lots of guns and rifles in an Antarctic research station. Which, why? It, It was the 80s. Oh, the 80s. The Soviets being possibly nearby in the Antarctic and all that stuff. It It's... Something that really like infiltrates its way into this movie, as it did with so many 80s movies. The Norwegian that the pilot shouts in the film is actually decipherable. It's a little broken. Okay. But it roughly translates to, get the hell out of there. That's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. See, that's great. See, that's see that was clever. Yeah? <laughs> the rest of it was not. <laughs> okay, the ending. Because there's a lot of theories about the ending. Because there's a lot of people who really like this movie and talk about it a lot. <laughs> Kurt Russell actually came up with the final moment and line of dialogue as they were working it out through filming. Okay. The studio execs gave permission for the ambiguous dark ending only if the audience was given a signal that the monster had been killed in the explosion. Okay. So that's a studio note. <laughs> so they added the second scream over the wide shot of the explosion which would suggest to people that the monster had been killed once and for all. Okay. There was a video game that came out in 2002 that Carpenter claimed, yes, this is canon to the story. And in that, Childs and McCready are both confirmed to be human. Okay. A few years later, he tweeted something out that said, that's correct. One is definitely a thing. So he has been fucking with people (laughs) over the way this ending works Mm -hmm. forever. And at some point in interviews, he basically said, I don't want to explain it. It's whatever you want it to be. He doesn't. He's like, you enjoy the ending, what you think it means. That's fair. Especially because like, I, I I understand my own interpretation, but like, it's not my movie anymore. <laughs> I I appreciate the distance from the film. I, I do. He really like, he, he processes these movies and then sets them aside. <laughs> That's I have very, to give him credit. It's very healthy. It really is. It's a healthy thing to be able to do with your with your art. The most popular evidence that points to Childs being a thing mm-hmm. is that McCready hands him a bottle of scotch, which he's been throwing around Molotov cocktails all over the camp. Mm-hmm. So 
we're pretty sure there's gasoline in that bottle, not scotch. Okay. Childs then drinks it and never reacts. Mm. The music also swells at that moment, so everybody who sees that thinks, hmm, that's possible. However, by what Carpenter said, and some hints from the following movie in 2011, th that doesn't make sense. Okay. So there's a lot of different things. Then they also filmed a ton of alternate endings, mostly to appease the studio. Okay. The filmed endings that they did were there's a cut to the future where McCready had been rescued and Childs was dead. McCready passes a blood test for a government official who mysteriously knows everything that happened. Hmm. There's another where a Malamute survives the explosion, looks at the burning camp, and runs off into the landscape. Okay. I think that's kind of badass. But that, that's interesting. And another has Childs walking off into the snowstorm, leaving McCready all by himself. I like that. There are a couple of unfilmed endings that were scripted. Okay. There's a showdown between Childs and McCready, so just a big fight. Okay. A rescue chopper arrives in time to rescue them, and they blow themselves up with dynamite. What? Which just adds to the bleakness. That is very bleak. <laughs> less fun. It's still pretty fucking bleak at the end. It is, because basically everybody's dead. And you don't know if the thing is there or not. And you're just like, well, guess we'll find out. That was a movie. Ooh. All right. Now we get to our director and we talk about John Carpenter. Yep. You hate it. So, I I mean, I've talked. I think John Carpenter is a good director. Mm -hmm. I think he did a bad job on this film because it's clear he did not make decisions. He hmm. didn't make decisions that he needed. He He was not in charge of this film. He didn't take this. This script sucks. The script sucks. And at some and, point, if he had the clout, he should have taken over the script writing. On well, it. He needed to do work to it or he needed to make some decisions to the script. Like in this scene, in this scene, you have it. In this scene, you don't. The scene you don't know. Like he needed to make some decisions. Hey, guys, you all think this guy has it. That's it. That's the that's the decision. That's your motivation. That's what we're going with. The end. And he just needed to make those choices as a director and he didn't do it. Or at least he didn't like it. Whatever he did didn't show up on the screen because it is messy as fuck. And it's it's unnecessarily gross. And it's almost like it's like, well, this movie sucks. So we're just going to horror it up to give something for people to focus on. Which I definitely don't think is his intent at all. It's like the horror aspects and the special effects are a crutch for this film. Hmm. They are. Because if they don't have those big moments, like they don't have the special effects. Like think about the moments that are happening. Take away the special effects. You still have those moments like this guy is going to die. This guy is going to have an accident. Take away the special effects. There's nothing happening in this movie. Nothing. They're all they're crutches in this film, which I will say in a lot of horror films is the case. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to pretend that that is not the case in a lot of horror films. I almost wonder if this would work better as a stage play. Then I say that and remember that Alien did this effectively. <laughs> it oh, yeah. isolated them. Mm -hmm. It put them in an isolated chamber. And they did something very similar for how they made this movie. They really did. Like, for all intents and purposes, it had the same ensemble feel. It mm -hmm. had the same unique, we're putting you in this isolated situation. Not everybody knows what's going on at any given time, that type of stuff. So this film does have an isolation in that it's supposedly one location that's not um, because they let them move too much. They had this one location, but they made too many bits of this location. They had too many locations within their one location. They let them leave the location. So they did try to do the same thing as Alien. Honestly, they did. And it doesn't work. And, and talking about the special effects as a crutch, this is interesting in what he talks about. First of all, he considers this his personal favorite film. And from an achievement standpoint in what he was making and where I, where I can look and sort of go, the different levels of did you succeed versus what I feel like you were trying to do, mm -hmm. I get that. Fair. This is also the film he has spent the most time in pre-production developing. So he worked a long time on crafting this film, how he was going to put it together, how they were going to construct it, then making the movie because they filmed this over three months. Like this is one of the longest shoots he ever did. Mm -hmm. And then 
putting it together in the end. So I think from okay. a craft standpoint, I totally get that. This was his baby, which I respect. But and it's also- interesting because it's not really his baby. But it, it, it's not. It's Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> but like that doesn't change the fact that it's not good. It's not. There's something that he just didn't accomplish in this film. It's almost like he's trying. Okay, because Halloween was 78. Okay. I, can never, I always think 79. Um, Halloween was like this perfect lightning. It was lightning in a bottle. Right. And it's almost like he's trying to do the same thing. And so many artists are guilty of that. It's like, hey, this approach, this idea, this style worked for me here. So I'm going to do it again. Sure. That makes sense. But here it's just, it's it's not, it's not working. The script is crap. You needed to really, really, really fix this script and really focus on what you're going to do with it. And then you really need to think about how are my special effects? How are these going to... What really he didn't think about his his creature at all at all like they didn't they didn't decide what the creature was or how it really truly worked or looked like or functioned because then if they had truly made decisions and stuck to them then those special effects could have been still amazing and been showstoppers and um, and just they could have gone all out like they did but they would have had more purpose. And they could have been scary as fuck and gross. And like, you can keep gross. I- I'm not opposed to gross. Because, well, because it's a body horror movie. Sure. I mean, it is fucking gross. It is, and you can keep, I mean, like, I typically don't like gross, but sometimes gross is fun. Sometimes gross is funny. There's a different world in which David Cronenberg makes this movie the master of body horror, who does a much better job at okay. this. Like, okay. there, there is a universe in which the guy who came up with Jeff Goldblum as the fly does this movie and it works a lot better because I believe that yeah his best work is understanding the actual terrifying feeling of your body morphing and you not being able to control it and I don't think John Carpenter's specialty is that his specialty is storytelling with a compelling figure he was sold on this movie by the blood test scene okay and he specifically wanted to make a monster film where the creature wasn't a man in a suit I I totally get that. For him, that effect didn't work in Alien. And say what you want, that's weird. I don't agree, especially because some of the guys that you brought up and worked with forever Mm -hmm. are the guys who made Alien. Yeah. But it just didn't work for him. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to do something different. Sure. The problem was, was he didn't think about how that was going to show itself on screen. The moments that really work for me in the special effects are when, like, as gross as it is, the spider with the head of Norris yes. is so cool because that is what the creature is. The creature is not visible to us. It is using the bodies of the hosts yes. to make itself be able to move. Sure. And there wasn't enough of that. Well, and also when it is truly unexpected, when I'm not seeing it come, when I don't realize that it's happening, yeah, that's like the the body, the dead body. And then it's oozing out stuff. And you're just like, oh, that's great. It's moving. You're like, oh, God. Well, like, that's creepy. And that's a wonderful buildup to what comes later. And like the defibrillator, that brings up so many issues of like, wait, did this guy actually have a heart attack? Or was the host pretending and faking a heart attack yeah. to try to hide? But then when he shocks him, it thinks it's being attacked. So that's why it eats the doctor. Exactly. Like, those are the moments mm-hmm. that work. Well, but we just, don't get enough of that but, specifically. But see, I don't even see that as that really working. I saw that more as like, okay, that's really shocking and a crazy fit. But again, that's just a huge crutch that it's like, I don't understand how this thing works. And you've not explained it because you haven't established anything at this point. That should have been shocking because at this point we've realized how it works. That would have been more effective if we figure if at that that should have been a moment where we we figured out how it works it should have come af- right after we figured out how it works or that should have been what caused us to figure out how it works and it did neither that is the chest burster scene from this movie that it scene is. right there and the difference is is that Literally. is that that scene mm-hmm. with the doctor and the guy having the heart attack that scene takes like 
five to seven minutes of screen time. Mm-hmm. The chest burster takes 30 seconds. Yep. It gets in and it gets out. And the disturbingness is the suddenness of it, mm-hmm. how quick it moves, and then the reaction of everybody to the, to the moment. Yeah. Uh, it, you're right. It just lingers. It lingers so long on that stuff yep. for the effect of it that it doesn't it, give us anything. This movie is the first of what Carpenter considers his apocalypse trilogy. Mm-hmm. The two that follow are Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, mm-hmm. all dealing with the end of the world in some form or fashion. Okay. Per John Carpenter, all of his failed movies are difficult to take. Well, they would be, but this was the worst for a lot of different reasons. Case in point, the very famous poster, which is like this light shining out of an Antarctic coat face, Mm -hmm. that was created overnight. The guy who made it hadn't seen any photos or images from the film, and Carpenter hated it. He felt like it was the final nail in the coffin after previews had just been disastrous. People were just, they hated the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, He wasn't allowed a choice. They basically said, take it or leave it on this poster. (laughs) And after all of his intention to get away from a man in a suit story, the poster was a man in a suit. Sure. And he he was like, what the fuck? He felt like the studio marketed the movie basically as a slasher movie and not at all what it was intended to be, Mm. which is a much more psychological thriller in a lot of ways. The original poster, which was used in Europe, is actually a series of jaws emerging from smoke in the sky above the outposts, okay. completely in black and white. Ooh. The problem was Poltergeist had used a black yeah. and white format, and Universal said no to the lack of color. That's fair. This is going to tie in. This was a Universal movie. So was Poltergeist. Yeah. Universal was way more interested in Poltergeist and Spielberg than they were in this movie. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame them. I'm... Poltergeist is a lot more straightforward, and this is bizarre and weird and... In a world, this is a really good movie. And I still kind of like it, but you're convincing me. <laughs> I love it. See, this this is why people like it when we fight. I know, I know. The studio wound up canceling their multi-picture deal with Carpenter because of the commercial failure of the film. I understand it. Carpenter said, quote, I lost a lot of jobs because of the thing. My career would have been very different had it been financially successful. Yeah. However. I mean, he, I mean he's he's been fine. Yep. However, it did become a huge cult success on video and on TV broadcasts. So it, it it for horror fans, this is considered a classic by so many. And he's been sort of vindicated in those circles. Like I, I totally understand that. Like there is value to be studied in this, but it's not a good movie. Mm. Uh, it shares a lot of this criticism with Blade Runner. <laughs> they were released on the same day. Oh, interesting. And both were critical bombs. You know, I've been thinking about Blade Runner a lot lately. And I think it's because of storytelling and just um, I'm I'm focusing on some storytelling stuff. And it's just I I liked Blade Runner and Blade Runner was like the like one of our first five films that we did on we this were, podcast. We liked Blade Total. Runner. We felt it didn't quite hold up story wise as much, but we we definitely were like there's so much value in this movie totally and it's so gorgeous it's a a tome for sure yeah and it's like this is where everything comes from oh my god i mean and i i fully respect it so that's so interesting and i kind of feel like i understand respect for this film but it is not a good film Hmm. i and i would say in horror circles especially in really dark horror circles this movie has a similar place that blade runner has for sci-fi Interesting. It very much does Hmm. as this sort of heralded lost classic. Hmm. The producers, for their part, attribute the failure of this movie to the release of E.T., which had come out a few weeks earlier. Everybody had seen a movie that with a cute, cuddly alien, and now they were being asked to see the most violent, awful alien ever. I mean, that is fair. And so they were like, you know, also it was fighting against Poltergeist if it was fighting against E.T. Yeah. So like... Man, <laughs> there, I, there's about eight different reasons why this movie had no chance of winning. Nope. But they did not help it by not writing a good story. Correct. You could, you could edit a better movie in this. You could. Yeah. You could edit one in there. It doesn't save it, but it, it would run. It would watch smoother. It's true. 
Oh, another fun part about Universal is that um, the TV broadcast they made of the movie introduced each character like it was a completely different cut and edit of the movie. It was so bizarre. Carpenter completely disowned it. Fair. But if you get the Blu-ray release, you can watch that version. No, thank you. <laughs> Universal also came up with the tagline, the ultimate in alien terror, just to shoehorn alien into the name to capitalize on the success of that film. I mean, they tried. Man, they, well, they tried, but they also took away from what Carpenter was trying to do with the movie. I understand. It's like, this is a very different thing. Just make it its own damn thing. Just just let it be its own thing. God. Who could have been better? Toby Hooper. Who is that? The director of Poltergeist. Oh, I was about to say, I was like, wait, I know that name. Why? This may give you a lot of context for why Steven Spielberg maybe took over some of the stuff in that movie. Hooper was supposed to direct and co-write this film. However, he had a drastically different idea of what this movie would have been. Okay. The alien wasn't going to shapeshift at all. Okay. And the main character was going to be an Ahab-like figure called the Captain on a quest to find and kill the thing. Hooper openly stated that he thought the source material was boring, and he thought this should be a horror comedy with slapstick humor. Oh, no. (laughs) The pitch was, quote, a swashbuckling action-adventure epic, a modern-day Moby Dick set not in the ocean, but at the bottom of the world. Antarctica. Oh, God. The producers were horrified. As they should have been. And pretty quickly fired Hooper from the project. That's very, (laughs) that was the correct choice. Quote, we avoided a disaster. It would have been one of the worst movies ever made. Okay, but here's the thing I will say about this. He made choices. (laughs) I don't think they were the right ones, but he made choices. (laughs) <laughs> he made choices all i know is that puts a lot of things in context for what went down on poltergeist where i was like oh oh my a little bit well i can understand why steven maybe decided to take the reins a little bit here steven was a dick there's 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 no there. but <laughs> but but here's the thing he made choices and john carpenter did not he had a very clear vision of what he wanted that alien to be. A year before you made Escape from New York, my dude. Come on. You can do better. <sighs> Some notes on the special effects for this film. Universal initially offered $200,000 for the effects. That's not enough. They were shocked when the production demanded more because Universal had never spent more money than that for a monster movie. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Uh, the guy heading this is Rob Botton. He was 22 years old when they started the project. Rob was um way in over his fucking head. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's considered a massive film benchmark in special effects makeup and effects. Yes, which is. definitely, absolutely, what they pull off in this movie is oh, sure. fucking nuts mm-hmm. for now, let alone 1982. That's no joke. Uh, Rick Baker was originally supposed to be the guy on this project, but he had way too many other commitments to be able to do it. Of course he did. (laughs) So Botton takes this on, but he was so involved and invested. By the time they got to post-production, he was virtually living in the studio. He got diagnosed with exhaustion and admitted to the hospital and wound up having to take breaks from the movie. I wouldn't feel too bad for him. He had played a character in Carpenter's The Fog and intended to play the character of Palmer, the assistant helicopter pilot in this movie. The crew immediately like stood up and went, fuck you, because they were already driven to exhaustion. They were like, you have way too much you have to fucking handle here. I mean, good looking out. This guy that he fought with constantly on set was so upset he threatened to quit the film. Wow. Like he was fighting with people left and right. I would not feel so bad for him. This sounds like a guy who overpromised and then had to somehow scramble to deliver. Yeah, I those people are always the best to work with. <sighs> There's so much in like the making of on how they did these different things and how they did the dog puppet and these mm-hmm. different tentacles and whips. The one interesting note is that he did bring in Stan Winston. Okay. To do the dog effect. Because at that point, he was hospitalized. Mm -hmm. So Stan Winston, the legendary creature creator stuff, came up with this whole puppet rig that went on top of the actor and they could use hands to open it and stuff like that. But Winston did that whole sequence in the cage. Okay. To help Rob Botten out. 
So if if you're interested in that stuff, if there's so many technical details on how they did all of that because it's very complicated, but there's a yeah. lot of good information on there. Mostly because this is a movie that deserves to be studied in that way. Fair. <laughs> by people who are making stuff. All right. And we get to our cast. So we're going to start with Kurt Russell as McCready. It's Snake Plissken again. Yay. What do we think of Kurt Russell in this movie? Oh, that iconic hair. He's so scruffy in this movie, though. He is kind of scruffy. He, I like that he is playing the anti-snake in some ways. He's very reluctant. Yeah. Um, he doesn't want to have to take charge of the situation. No, he just wants to sit in his cabin and drink. And then go fly a helicopter if he needs to. Yeah, and then I like that he calls the computer a bitch. <laughs> I like that. But it it is just like, okay, he can be a badass and still be like a different kind of nuanced character. Sure. And then he's just Kurt Russell. The beard, though. Apparently it took him a year to grow the hair and the beard for the film. The hair and the beard. The beard for sure. Because that is a huge it's, it's beard. It's a very thick beard, but it's an Antarctica beard. Oh, yeah. Um, He had a much deeper backstory for McCready than what the film shows us. Mm -hmm. um, he was apparently a Vietnam vet chopper pilot who was involved in a tragedy in the war and left jaded about his service. So he was suffering from PTSD, alcoholism, and severe insomnia, mm -hmm. which gives some credence to some of the lines like, I'm a light sleeper and stuff like that. Yeah. And why he's constantly drinking and why all it, it, sure. it gives some extra stuff to that. He occasionally took a drag from a cigarette at the beginning of a shot to make his breath more visible in the cold. Cool. In blowing up Palmer. He almost injured himself because he had no idea how big that explosion was going to be. So his reaction that you see on screen when he throws the dynamite is his actual reaction. That's funny. And who could have been better? Kevin Klein was considered because he was a little bit of a bigger star at the time. Sure. Carpenter really wanted Kurt to do the movie, but he did give Klein serious consideration for the role. Hmm. Talk about that one set play type feel. Klein would dig into the role. Yeah. I don't hate it. No, I don't either. Because in 80s, Kevin Klein, just as handsome. <laughs> oh, Kevin Klein. All the, uh, Kevin Klein is one of my favorite actors. Like, yeah. I adore him. Next up, A. Wilford Brimley. Oh, God. As Dr. Blair. Who we have talked about before. Who we have talked about before in The Natural. And rest in peace, he passed away in August 1st. I didn't even realize. Of this year? Of this year, yeah. He was still kicking? I thought he passed away a long time ago. No, but he did He did pass away very recently, which I was just like, wow, I didn't even know. That is, that is surprising. Before this, he did The Waltons, The China Syndrome, The Electric Horseman, Brubaker, Absence of Malice, and Death Valley. After this, Tender Mercies, Tough Enough, The Natural, Cocoon, Cocoon the Return, The Firm, Hard Target, In and Out, Did You Hear About the Morgans, I Believe, and so much commercial work with medical supplies and Quaker Oats. He's in I Believe. Uh-huh. Jesus. This is one of his last film roles. He's in I Believe with KJ Abba. Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and say Wilford Brimley steals this movie for me. I really like his performance. Mostly because I've never seen Wilford Brimley do this before. Okay. Because there's a couple. There's a lot of dudes. He's the one who does the spaceship at the end, right? Yes, he is. He's the one who they 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 sequester outside. He is the Blair thing, and he's he's the he's the scientist who goes. He's the one who calculate who makes the calculations, and then they shove him outside, right? Yep, and goes bug fuck in the he goes in the place. He goes crazy, tearing everything down, and then yeah. he tears everything apart. Okay, yeah. Just wanted to make sure I remembered exactly which one he was. And talking about your not making good choices. We should have had a better understanding later on, or they should have had a more solid understanding of when it was he turned and whether he knew or not. We never get any clue later on. How do these guys know when it happened? Yeah. And at the very least, you feel like they should know. Mm -hmm. Even if you're like suddenly like, what the fuck about it? Yeah. Because I feel like the what the fuckness would be transferred if they knew when. But you're left guessing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I really like his performance. So oh, agreed. Because he, out of everybody in the movie, he is genuinely unsettling. In like, with, with the noose hanging in his room and the way he just goes, I'm feeling much better now. Can I come in, please? Yes. And you're like, absolutely fucking not. You look 
bonkers. No, you look like you're going to murder me. No, thank you, please. I, he really does a great job. Yeah, he, he has, he makes a, a great turn. Uh, they cast him because they wanted an everyman who wouldn't be questioned by the audience until it was finally time to reveal him. That was, I mean, that's the perfect choice. Like, you, you make him as the this dude, like, it's Wilford Brimley. He's a trustworthy man. Yeah, and he he wasn't Wilford Brimley by this point. I know, but. But he's got that feel and look for yeah, sure. He looks, he's grandpa. Yeah, he just looks like a middle-aged dude who he's the biologist. He understands how all this works. Yep. And even when he's, like, losing his shit. Mm-hmm. He's doing it for what seems like a pretty good reason because nobody believes him about this. So this movie, we'll get into how it was filmed, but most of the the camp scenes were filmed in British Columbia. He never filmed there because he had so many other projects going on. They had to do all of his stuff in Los Angeles. Uh, According to John Carpenter, he was the only cast member who wasn't made queasy by the autopsy sequences. They were using actual animal organs for those. He is a literal cowboy. Yes, I did know that. And so he would he had dealt with stuff that was just as bad or worse sure. on his farm. <laughs> he did. Carpenter would come up to him and, and just be like, hey, you know, how, how you doing? Is everything okay with some of the more intense sequences? And Wilford Brimley said, quote, I'm just picking up my laundry. <laughs> <laughs> just say that in your diabetes voice. <laughs> yep. Uh, still, he disagreed with the gore in the final production. He thought it affected the audience negatively. He might have been right. It's just done poorly. He also thought that Joel Police, who we won't talk about here, but he was Fuchs, the sort of glasses scientist guy okay, uh, who gets burned alive later on. Mm-hmm. He did this whole study of biology and how to be a biologist. And Wilford apparently thought this was laughable. Quote, this movie is about rubber and steam, unquote. He's not wrong. No. <laughs> Which, again, there's nothing wrong with that for a movie. But it's no. like, that is what this movie is. You don't have to be that great at this. Fair. Who could have been better? Donald Pleasance. Okay. John Carpenter wanted his guy back. Sure. It, it would have made sense to want him in the movie. He would have been unsettling, but it wouldn't have been as much of a surprise. No. It just wouldn't. I don't think it would have worked as well. No. It, I think it would have been a, more of a giveaway. It would have felt like stunt casting. Like, no offense, but it, that's just how it would have come off. Donald Pleasance just kind of has a menacing vibe. Like, that's just who he is. Well, at this point with Halloween, that's how it would have felt. Like, it just would have been like, oh, you're, this is a stunt cast. Also on the list, Clint Eastwood. Oh, okay. Interesting. He would have been good in the... Um, the captain role? Yeah. That would have been a good role for him. Ooh, yeah. Then we have T.K. Carter playing Nalls, the chef. Okay. Before this, he was in Southern Comfort. After this, Dr. Detroit, Punky Brewster, Jem. He did voice on Jem. Runaway Train, Good Morning, Miss Bliss. The Sinbad Show, Space Jam. He was the Monstar Not. The Corner, Badass, Domino, and The Way Back. Here's how I feel about this character from a who could have been better. Mm-hmm. Franklin Ajaye, who is Samuel Fields in Deadwood, and okay. also plays Lillian's dad in Bridesmaids. Okay. He came to read for the character of Knowles. Instead, he critiqued Carpenter for writing a giant stereotype of a black character for 15 minutes. Good for him. Carpenter met him with pretty icy silence, which I could understand in a professional setting. But on the other hand, he's kind of right. Knowles is a shitty character. Yep. <laughs> there is nothing interesting about what Knowles brings to this movie. Nope. He does nothing. Yeah. So like, I don't, I don't, I don't blame. I was like... That's how I feel about this character. It's I, a shitty stereotype. I have nothing for respect, but respect for him for just being like, fuck you, this character sucks. I hope John Carpenter learned a lesson from that. Mm, mm. I wonder if he did. I haven't looked at his films. <laughs> we have David Clennon playing Palmer. Uh, you would have seen him before in The Paper Chase, Bound for Glory, The Greatest Coming Home and Being There. And after this, Star 80, The Right Stuff. Legal Eagles, 30-something, which he was on for a long time. Okay. Antitrust and Syriana. Okay. At this point, we're just on guys. Yeah, he's smarmy. Another dude. Another dude. According to Kurt, Palmer's line, you've got to be fucking kidding, is Kurt's favorite moment from the movie and always makes him laugh. And to be fair, it is one of the few fun moments when the spider is crawling back out after they think they've torched it. That's pretty funny. (laughs) And they're like... Oh, fucking shit, man. That's fair. He was 
probably one of the only actors who got really annoyed over the course of filming because they would get bogged down filming while they debated how the thing works. Yeah, see, that shouldn't happen. It I just know. shouldn't. He finally just went, good, just make the fucking movie, man. Yep. It's um, a waste of time. And moving on into Arpon territory, because the rest of these guys are just guys. Uh, we've got Keith David playing Childs. This is his first credited film role, but he is a that guy of epic proportions. Mm-hmm. And you'd probably know him best as the villain in The Princess and the Frog. He does a lot of voice work. He was the main character in Gargoyles mm-hmm. as well. But he's been in so many different movies as well. Just as a, a prolific character actor. Mm-hmm. He wears gloves throughout the movie and was in a car accident. He had to cover up his cast. Oh, okay. So that's why. And who could have been better? We had a lot of people here. We had Bernie Casey, who played Felix Leiter and Never Say Never Again. Okay. We had Isaac Hayes, potentially making a return from Escape from New York. Interesting. Jeffrey Holder, who played Baron Samedi in Live and Let Die. Ernie Hudson of oh, Ghostbusters. That would have been fun. And Carl Weathers. Oh, I love Carl Weathers. And Ernie Hudson almost won this role from Keith David. Oh, but Keith David was like 25 at the time of this movie. Interesting. This is very early in his career. Uh, Richard Dysart is Dr. Copper. You might have seen him in L.A. Law or a bunch of other character movies. Who could have been better for this doctor character? Brian Dennehy was almost cast. Wow. Until Carpenter changed his mind at the last minute. And William Daniels, a.k.a. Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. Almost got this role. Wow. He would have been great. Playing Clark, the dog guy, we've got Richard Mazur. Uh, he was also in Risky Business, My Girl, and License to Drive. He turned down E.T. because this role was certain to be included in the film. His role in E.T. was not. Mm. So we get Donald Moffat as Gary. He played LBJ in The Right Stuff. <laughs> okay. Who could have been better? Lee Van Cleef. Oh, wow. Which would have been a great. It would have been a great captain role for that sure. and he survives near the end of the movie with kurt russell yeah they had great chemistry in escape from new york yeah would have been good also jerry orbach and testing well when they thought they might go with a younger actor powers booth Ooh, powers booth you have to change how those characters interact a little more Just because little they're bit. they're more close in age sure but man still would have been great Uncredited as the voice of the chess computer, Adrian Barbeau. Okay, great. And as a Norwegian in the video footage, John Carpenter. <laughs> I like that. And finally, uncredited in this movie, but doing an amazing job and a good, good boy, we have Jed the dog as Dog Thing. <laughs> dog Thing. Jed was also in The Journey of Natty Gan and White Fang Aww. with Ethan Hawke. Love White Fang. That's a great movie. Jed is a hybrid Canadian timber wolf and Alaskan Malamute. So he's actually part wolf. Yep. My grandfather had a dog similar to that. That was part wolf. He was apparently an excellent animal actor, able to keep his focus away from cameras and crew. He could keep trained exactly where he needed to be in the scene. They train very well. The hallway scene only took four or five takes to shoot. John Carpenter was like, immensely impressed i think john's like i've had actors that are harder to work with than this like damn dogs forever now (laughs) jed really did not become good friends with a lot of his co-stars the only two that he ever warmed up to were ethan hawk in white fang and richard mazer i mean it totally makes sense because i mean how much time he had to spend with ethan hawk and richard mazer is just a sweet teddy bear of a man it's true and jed is not the dog running in the chase scene okay I assume he's not more of a runny type dog. Different training. Yep. So they had another dog and they painted it to look like Jet. Okay. To have it run through the snow. And that gets us to our trivia. Trivia. Jet's such a good boy. Uh, The film has become a cultural touchstone for Antarctic travel. All British Antarctic research stations watch the movie as part of their midwinter feast and celebration (laughs) held on June 21st. That's creepy. but I I, I get it. I get it. I love it. There are several homages and unofficial uh, takes on this movie. 2011, of course, brought a remake and prequel. Okay. The X-Files has an episode, Ice, in its first season that is a direct homage to this movie. That's actually how I saw the premise of this first. Oh, okay. I watched the first season of the X-Files just to watch it, and they did this same exact premise. Okay. 
they do a little bit better job because they never show it. Because mm-hmm. it's just the results of it. Yeah. And the faculty borrows liberally from this movie. Oh, yeah, it does. It does. That's true. It just takes a comic high school setting for it. Faculty is a stupid movie, but it was better than this. <laughs> uh, they filmed this in three months on six sound stages in LA, and then they did all of the camp shots in Stewart, British Columbia. Okay. Stewart is the snowfall capital of North America. So they built the camp in July 1981 so that they could begin filming in December. Okay. Temperatures ranged between zero and negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit during that shoot. Mm-hmm. $75,000 was spent just to keep everybody warm in winter gear while they were filming there. Yeah. And the only accessible road to get there travels through Alaska. So they actually filmed part of the dog chase in the Juneau ice fields. Oh, interesting. In order to make the locations match, they put a blue oil barrel within the shot mm-hmm. that they revolved around both in British Columbia oh, okay. and Juneau, and that became the reference point for how they would match the shots up. That makes sense. The LA locations on sound stages were cooled to 40 degrees Fahrenheit so they could get the feeling of cold and breath on screen. It was actually 100 degrees outside in LA while they were filming. Wow. So they, they just cooled all the sets. Universal thought it would be way too expensive to do that, so they offered to just say, well, let's just film it in cold storage lockers. Not a bad idea. No. But then they got in there, and it was super cramped, and there were low ceilings, and you couldn't get any shots. Yeah. So they realized it was way easier to just do it and chill the studios. Man. A case in point, the shot of the small hole where the alien gets buried, where they go out to this big exterior, Yeah. that was filmed on a Universal backlot. The snow, the helicopter, and the spaceship were all matte painted into the background. Was it done by Jimmy Cameron? No, because he's, I think he's well on his way to bigger things at this oh, point. Okay, sorry. I just need to ask them. <laughs> Aneo Morricone did the score for this film. He did. The score is actually pretty good. It was nominated for a Razzie, which I'm like, what the fuck? I was like, really? It's one of the best things about this damn movie. It is quite good. Morricone actually seems to have jumped off from John Carpenter's scores because mm-hmm. he wrote a very John Carpenter-like score. It has low, menacing tones. Sure. What gives it away as a Morricone score is like when we get into the open spaces and you hear some orchestral flair. Yep. And you're like, okay, this is definitely not John Carpenter. Yep. <laughs> but it's definitely in there. Funny enough, as bad as people thought this was, unused portions of the score were used for his score for The Hateful Eight, the score that won him an Oscar. (laughs) For his part, John Carpenter never offered or asked to do the music. This was just a different type of studio and situation for him. But he loves what Morricone did for the score of this movie. It's very good. And it's very, it's it's what he would have done anyway. Very similar. Yeah. I, I can't believe people razzed that part of this movie. I'm like, really? That makes no sense to me whatsoever. The opening title sequence attempted to recreate the sequence from the original film from 1951 with the spaceship crashing into Earth. They pulled it off by having an animation cell with the title written on it placed behind a fish tank filled with smoke and then covered all of that with a plastic garbage bag. They lit the bag on fire, creating the burning vision On the title screen. Okay. And then when they burn the bag, the words, the thing, look like they're burning into the screen. That makes more sense. Yep. Um, They didn't use the Universal logo because they were afraid of confusing the logo and the saucer crashing to Earth. Okay. And this is before we do the tie-ins like we do now. Someone suggested that they still use the logo, pan around, and then zoom out Mm -hmm. to see the saucer crash in. But instead, they just went for a white title on a black background instead. The Alaskan helicopter pilot who flew in the initial sequence offered to crash his helicopter for money. Okay. Indeed, that was in the original works. The original sequence was supposed to have the helicopter crash and explode, the pilot emerging to follow the dog into the camp. Okay. However, when they worked with miniatures, they couldn't make it work in any convincing way. And then they thought about having it explode behind a mountain, but that was a giant cliche in movies. Sure. So they decided, no, let's just have him land it. Fuck it. It's fair. 
Fangoria had a contest before the movie's release in 1982. If anyone could draw the thing as close as to what it would actually look like, they could win a trip to Universal Studios. Okay. No word on whether anybody won that contest. Yeah, because but... they would have had to make a fucking decision. And then, <laughs> and then since they never made any, uh, they, how would they prove that that person actually won? This is one of the first movies to have surround sound capabilities in its actual sound mix. Okay. It wasn't like it was advertised, but home video geeks would use the movie to try out stereo effects on their home video systems. Okay, that's cool. The film actually uses military-grade liquid-fueled flamethrowers, which is a rarity in movies, but those were the actual real deal that they were using on set. (laughs) Yeah. That's absurd. And one note of some good detail that was in this movie, in the blood test scene, there is a very subtle hint as to who is infected. Okay. The director of photography put a light in the eyes of each character except for Palmer in that scene. Mm. So if you're looking very carefully, their, their eyes gleam except for Palmer. His eyes stay dark. Interesting. And that gives away that he is the one infected. Hmm. Well, it's just a hint that he's different somehow. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's cool. Okay. See, that's where they made a choice. And that gets us to our ratings. And so I think we got to go with Petri dishes. Okay. I'm fine with Petri that. dishes of blood. Yep. I was really excited for this movie. I won't lie. It's a movie I've wanted to see for a long time. That's the st- premise and the story got me super excited about it. That's true. David was campaigned for this movie for for this series hard and yeah. i was just like fine i he wore me down <laughs> he he really wore me down after having all this discussion taking everything into consideration i've worn him down <laughs> i'm gonna give it a three okay i accept that i I, accept, I really do accept that like i understand that there are massive problems with the way the movie is constructed it's got so many plot holes and it's because there wasn't a good consensus mm-hmm. and a and not a good creative direction it has no respectable foundation None. That's the problem. It doesn't have a respectable foundation. Well, to me, the respectable foundation is exactly the paranoia of trying to figure out what the thing is, but that didn't get articulated on screen. To me, it's the opposite. It's that you have the foundation, but you didn't execute it well at all. There are many good movies that don't also have that, that somehow worked great in spite of those problems. Yeah. And that's people who who sat down and did the work with a crappy script or because they they just did they did the work or actors who polished a turd it it's all of those elements that worked in spite of that problem okay like that's like i don't want to say well you you have to have those to have a good movie that's not true this film didn't have those and then at no point were was anybody able to overcome that problem so it was all it was set up for failure and they weren't able to overcome it and nevertheless as i watched the movie I got sucked in so much. And I I think it's just the power of that Mm -hmm. ensemble, the way they work together, and what John Carpenter did with those guys. Mm -hmm. It just worked for me. And so that's why I'm like, I can't can't knock it too much because even with all of that and recognizing that's true, I still really liked this movie. (laughs) So it's going to be three Petri dishes for me. Okay. I'm going to give it a two. Okay. Really only because I respect the movie. And that's really it. Like I, <laughs> I, I respect the movie. Like I, I under like I understand the things that you do like about it, but it's not a good movie. Hmm. Like I understand why people who are super into horror films and like as somebody like if I had seen this movie five years ago, I would have been like, this is ap- I would I would barely even give it a, a one. <laughs> you would be lucky to get <laughs> a point five from me. Wow. This is the best time. This is the best it you, you're ever going to get from me because this is the best time for me to see a film like this because I am actively analyzing horror films yeah. for, for storytelling purposes. So for that, I respect it and nothing else. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. That's all it's a two. <sighs> ah, 10 out of 10 would watch again. No, <laughs> not going to happen. You know what? They, it is it is fun when we have wildly different opinions on these. It really yeah, is. It's, it it is because we get to have a conversation where I beat you down. <laughs> Sometimes I convince you. Every once in a while, you you cannot convince me. You can soften me. I have I have done it before. On what? 
I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's it for Scaretober 2020. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Scarevember went a little long, but there's going to be way more uh, at this point. We're just getting into needing to do franchises. So there's franchises. There's other great horror movies. We have to put Alien on the dang list now. No, because I don't. I genuinely don't believe that I've seen like the theatrical cut of that film. Oh my god. I know it's a problem, but that's okay. That's a whole series. It is. It is. And so, by ending that, I guess we need to talk about where we're going next. Where are we going next? Well, we're going to circle back to the beginning of this series with someone who was not involved in directing these movies, but was intimately involved in making one of these movies for sure. So, okay. So, backing up a little bit. You know, whenever people talk about movies, like, oh, I haven't seen this, like, oh, blah, 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 this, or oh, you should see that. And people say, oh, I'll put it on the list. We have an actual list. We do. There is an actual list that we keep track of of films that we should see or haven't seen or like, oh, we wanted to see that and we just never got to it so that we can try to have series. And one of the longstanding lists that we have is directors. And there is a director. And there's a director that we've talked about a little bit who's got a handful of relatively big films that one or both of us have not seen and that would be steven spielberg it's you let's let's make it's this my, clear it's, it's, it's diana. you it's diana and diana has not seen some of his bigger films oh my gosh so yeah it's a problem we we're gonna discuss some very important movies like in just movies okay <laughs> that you haven't seen there's there's movies that i haven't seen and we'll have to discuss why. And then there are also some movies that we are not going to watch and I will not see. And we're going to discuss why, because I have veto power. Understood. So, yeah, we're going to do, I think, I think we have five Spielberg movies. We have five spreading the entire length of Steven's career. From very early to very recent, because there's a there's a nice little handful that we want to see. And Steven has interesting arcs in his career. He really does. He does. He's made lots of different kinds of movies. He, he he really has. And I think one of the things that's been really fun about picking those movies, like, wait, he directed that? Wait, no, I thought is I continued to get confused about like, wait, I thought he just produced that because it's just it's gotten so muddy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, next is going to be Spielberg. Get ready for lens flare. Oh, lens flare. Child looking up straight at the camera from above. Little blonde girls. Yeah, that's what he does. Till next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.